0: You go down this cliff, go left down the cliff, left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. It's society. They work for each other, they pay each other, they buy houses, they get married, make children. That just sounds like slavery with extra steps. I don't know if you've noticed, but our two-party system is a bowl of looking in the mirror at itself. I can't wait for the episode of who wants to be a millionaire where all the
1: contestants team up, and they overpower the host, and they share the money.
0: (laughs)
2: The message of Occupy Wall Street is I would prefer not to play the existing game.
1: We are a socialist party and there are social solutions to the problems lifestyles? I don't
0: know about that. No one can tell me what to do. Wow. You're a real anarchist. No we had a king! I thought we we're an autonomous collective! No words for you puppets of the West. Communism forever!
2: God, God, those communists are amazing. Okay, welcome to the Three Left Show. Uh, I am your host, Dan Platt. Um, this program covers issues, opinions, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed. Promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy, it discusses the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself, using socialism anarchism, and ecological perspectives in theory and policy. So these are the flags of the three lefts. I bid you welcome uh, to the leftist uh, reading hours. And I have a special guest, uh, The Mayhem Calling. Introduce yourself, please. Hi,
1: everyone. I am I'm, I'm Tramus Anthrope of The Mayhem Calling. Uh, we are a monthly podcast slash YouTube channel slash uh, hopefully soon to be a full-on activist organization. I am still working on the details of that, but... Yeah, we cover things from a leftist perspective, mostly focused on activism or on education. I am also a pro-union slash anti-work activist. So hopefully uh, I provide some some fun quips and some interesting talking points or, you know, just some fun reactions when we go about our subject today.
2: Yeah. Um, me, uh, so Mayhem Calling, uh, or... Misanthrop uh, was another fellow panelist on the leftist uh, panel. We did two on the leftist. I'll just call them leftist panels. And uh, yeah, and he's been doing uh, various other panelists on his show, like uh, Fraggle was another one who does, uh, who just kind of mostly focuses on police reform. Um, And I, since in our panel discussion focused on the Green Party, uh, I was just on his show to discuss Green Party politics and go through all the uh, standard arguments that I've done on the show at least five times over. What I've decided to do with uh, T today is uh, to actually do the Paracon episode that I've been uh, wishing to do for, for, well, the whole time I've had this show, I suppose, because it was uh, before this show that I was, I'm a big fan of Paracom, which is a economic model created by some heady academics and And I even made my own PowerPoint presentation and talk to go with it, to give it, uh, you know, local TEDx forum or whatever. And uh, but I've yet to think I have actually yet to actually give that talk. Um, I made a kind of Occupy Wall Street talk that I gave at least twice. (laughs) And I think I, yeah, and because I weave in participatory government or, or direct democracy into that talk to like my... My Occupy talk would slowly turn into a direct democracy talk. And the last time I gave that was to a group of science nerds who just couldn't wrap their head around deliberation, deliberative democracy, I guess, because they just don't trust anybody. Um, I don't know. And uh, But it was, it was an interesting time. And slowly, I kind of like wanted to do Paracom talks. Uh, but by the time that I put it all together, I was starting to... Be interested in the podcasting side or making media so i'm like okay i'll turn my talk into a set of videos didn't really get into that because i didn't actually have video skills and then that just kind of stayed on the back burner and then i start running for office being green all the other types of community projects it just you know giving the talk or, or time banking came up and that became something that I could give a talk on. Participatory budgeting, things that didn't take an hour to explain. But um, after some digging, I found a Paracom, an article summarizing Paracom that actually isn't that long. Because otherwise, whether it's on YouTube or in book form, it takes a while to explain, but it really shouldn't take that long to kind of say the main three things about it, which is that the the problem with most political ideologies is that they still maintain uh, class divisions and that we need to put effort into identifying what causes class divisions. Some ideologies already have an answer for this, but they've been over historical terms over the last hundred years wrong. Let's say, you know, socialists say capitalists, if you take away the capitalists, then we can start moving towards classlessness. That's, uh, socialist states bear that, that out as not being the case. Other types of anarchists say it will, oh, you know, it's just these government hierarchies, but you remove them, and then you still have social and identity and hierarchies based on um, types of work people do. That's what it kind of gets into. So I'm going to start with this article from um, a um, posted by New Unionism. Uh, to track down a link so that you could read it yourself, dear audience. But at the moment I have the date that it was published at the towards the end of 2012, almost a decade ago. But it's called Global Unionism: The Paracom Model. So um, a New Unionism is the author's name. So I guess it was a site or something. Gotcha. So I'm starting starting the reading. So in a speech given at the Global Labor Institute Summer School in Manchester earlier this year, lifelong trade unionist Dan Galling said, or stated, the need of the hour is a serious challenge to global transnational capital and to world order it has fashioned. Such a challenge cannot be mounted unless the movement recovers a common identity based on an alternative vision of society. Being left wing in the 20th century meant that vision was the Soviet Union or... Uh, or whatever and with anarchists that alternative vision is the zapatistas or rojava but we're not united around that as the as the, the we're not there's no it's not a common vision for society so he he added our movement is in deep crisis a twofold crisis and he's referring to a labor movement a crisis of the trade union movement and a crisis of socialism and we should be aware that these are related We so much that it is impossible to deal with them separately. So the writer says, Here I think Allen is spot on. The reason organized labor cannot mount a serious challenge to global global capitalism is due to a crisis of socialism, which has had an inevitable weakening impact on the international trade union movement. It therefore follows that in order to overcome a crisis in unionism, we first need to address this crisis of socialism. Like particularly how we define it for the 21st century.
1: Yeah, that's uh, so, that's actually something I did mention. Like, I think that we, I thought, I think we talked about it a little bit when uh, we were talking about unions on my podcast. Which I don't, um, I don't know when people are gonna listen to this, but it's either gonna be after or before this episode. So, but yeah, like, um, it's absolutely true. Like, there is a element of socialism. There's a element of organizing within the community that you have to do before you can even think about like any other aspect of it and the best way to do any sort of organization is through at the very least a socialist mini government a socialist idea of everyone comes together we all have an equal vote we all have an equal say and we all have an equal part to play
2: this comes in the form of the uh, general assembly. Uh, in a government form, and economically as, like, a mutual aid collective. Absolutely. I think when mutual aid collectives, I made this comment in my show, I'll repeat it again, or last last week's show, but I'll repeat it again, that until, like, the mutual aid collective starts making pasta and other kind of goods that are bought in the store, like, things that are actually manufactured, um, we're not going to be able to bite the hand that feeds us. Or we can't really break free from the market economy. We can't say no. We know is powerful. And we need to say no to the system, and but we can't just keep dumpster diving for what we eat or the power we get or the basics of our of our lives unless we're really prepared to cut back and go primitive, primitivist uh, or something like it, something that's halfway there. So. Drawing on the work of Michael Albert and Robin Handel, I will briefly explain why I think socialism is in crisis. I will also propose an alternative economic vision to that socialism. By the way, the crisis is referring to is the fact that the Cold War ended and capitalism, quote unquote, won. That there's no united version of socialism, that you have social democrats, you have democratic socialists, you have uh, kind of social anarchists, and you have labor unionists still. But there's no socialist movement, so to speak. Or if there is one, it's very disjointed because it's a lot of different tendencies and strategies for getting power or what the goals are for that movement. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, A lot of it's harm reduction. And fighting for social and having a socialism means you're not just reducing harm. So finally, I will describe how this new economic vision could be used to inform global unionism presented here as an alternative to the current international trade union movement as a means of organizing the desperately needed challenge to the current insane system of capitalism, capitalist destruction and greed. First, a word on the the binary of capitalism and socialism. So economics is about production, consumption, allocation of goods and services, under capitalism, the economy is privately owned by and run in thus the interests of a very small minority, typically referred to as capitalists, capitalist class. Socialism, on the other hand, is meant to be a very different one. So this is just setting terms: one in which there are no private owners and where economy functions in the interests of co- of a commons, common good. Whereas capitalism generates private tyrannies, socialism is meant to foster economic democracy, where workers and consumers have control. However, as we know, things did not work out that way in the 20th century. What went wrong? First is a matter of class consciousness. Central to the analysis presented here, why there's a crisis of socialism, is class consciousness. Looking back at the so-called socialist societies during the 20th century, it now seems clear that the workers and consumers were not in control of the economy. However, it also seems clear that there was no capitalist owners either. So if the working class and capitalists were not in control, who was? So the answer offered by Albert and Handel is what they call the coordinator class. Sometimes in American, like in our language, we use professional managerial class, but it's slightly different, if not just more accurate (coughs) to call them coordinators. So their definition is planners, administrators, technocrats, and other conceptual workers who monopolize, the information and decision-making authority needed to determine outcomes. So an intermediate class in capitalism uh, is is their role. Uh, In the Soviet Union and China and Yugoslavia, they were the ruling class. Uh, Otherwise, the PMC or coordinators are the middle class, like in America. Right. So from this, we can see that So in a way, the Soviet Union was a little closer because it cut out the capitalists and you just had coordinators and workers. So it was two classes instead of three, but still a hierarchy. So From this, we can see that what we've conventionally seen as socialist economies, but by those on the left and right are understood by Albert and Handel as coordinator economies, not socialist ones. So a coordinator economy being one that an economy in which a class of experts Managers and conceptual workers monopolize decision-making authority while traditional workers carry out orders. So apologists for smashing the Soviets and centralization of power by the coordinator class during the Russian Revolution typically highlight external factors like the Civil War. Trotskyists. Yeah. However, as Albert and Handel point out, such accounts fail to take into consideration the fact that Trotsky himself stated, putting him, I consider that if the Civil War had not plundered our economic organs of all that was strongest, most independent, most endowed with initiative, we should undoubtedly have entered the path of one-man management much sooner and much less painfully. This could be amazingly out of context, but whatever. So from this candid expression of coordinator class desires for control, we can safely conclude that if Trotsky, instead of Stalin, had followed Lenin as their leader, we would still not have had worker and consumer control of the economy. We would not have had classlessness. And given the influence of such figures, I think we can draw some of a conclusion regarding any kind of 20th century socialism. Uh, I think I wanted to add to that paragraph that, oh, that there's uh, maybe an acceptance that to modernize, to industrialize, there needs to be these this... Um, this, uh, this hierarchy, this uh, domination of coordinators, but I think Gandhiism was all about that communities can self-manage their own industrialization. But it's odd that you know modernizing kind of does entail a certain amount of specialization, like it, it requires it, and specializing means you're coordinating or. Uh, But I wouldn't put it as inevitable. I think it's just the way it happened. And I think the counter, from an anarchist point of view, is that if we're all, like, the transition, that we're all kind of being educated the same amount, and we can all, we don't need these coordinators to make decisions over others. Any any responses to uh, that stuff?
1: Yeah, actually, so... Um, mostly I just wanna focus on that, yeah, like obviously the most basic tasks and I know like everyone's probably gonna see this cover this, like the Conquest of Bread, Dallas Capital, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But going outside of that, you can also see a lot of that coming from thin just uh I think one of the best examples I have in town is that we have we do have co ops and everything like that, which, you know, kind of follow along that path but a lot of them are still fairly corporate as weird as that sounds but um
2: oh, it's not weird this no. is actually what like um albert and Handel kind of get at yeah and that a 20th century so- a so 21st century socialism isn't really a co-op strategy i mean co-ops take have a part in transitioning to it but they're not the end they're not actually democratizing because as, as, as this goes on and as my writing put goes on to summarize the whole book that um, still maintaining class relations as long as there's a corporate division of labor. No, absolutely. So that's the, that's, that's the phrasing that they use actually, um, that co-ops even in democratic decision-making are still replicating that division of labor. Well, this will, we'll, I'll explore why by continuing. So the central to understanding the demise of working class support for socialism then is this coordinator class consciousness, which I guess trickles down, which is individualism incarnate to me. If you have too much individualism, everything just kind of becomes what's good for me or what am I doing about this instead of like a collective action. So without it, it is impossible to understand the twofold crisis highlighted by Gallant. Once we develop coordinator class consciousness, it is possible to begin to address this crisis by identifying the source of coordinator class power, by actually, you know, by recognizing that this class actually exists and that we'll, you know what we can. It's not just these professional managerial types that there actually are a class with their own interests in, in a way, and that and that's what makes up most Democrats.
1: Right. No, I I yeah, I wanted to respond to that, but I also want to continue my point that I was making earlier. I think the best example we have in town, where I live in Tucson, which, by the way, I'm not an Albany, so if anyone's wondering why I'm talking, why I'm not uh, referring to things locally, that's why. Um, yeah. I In town, we have a couple of uh, unnamed, I say unnamed, they probably have an internal name, but they don't have any official name. We have some unofficial organizational groups where they go out and they actually do, like you were talking earlier, how the mutual aid funds, if they're not creating like pasta or they're not creating things that we would buy at the store, they actually mm. do that stuff and they have food licenses and everything. They basically uh, take donations for all the stuff to make the stuff. Like they take donations to bake. They take donations to
2: yeah cook. Well, and then, well, food, not bombs chapters do. I mean, they do a lot of them do their own cooking Yeah, as this, well. It's just that usually you do it with, you know, dumped um, salvaged food. But we also, of course, take donations too.
1: Yeah. So, this yeah. one, this one's not affiliated with Food's Not Bombs. This is exclusively like a collective of people who they got. So together it's a for.
2: collective that they don't name themselves because I guess once you name something, it's like that's a Western chauvinist way of controlling it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in a way, they're, they're a bunch of old hippie anarchists. So they,
2: okay. They're older. Okay. Yeah.
1: They, they don't want to get involved with all that, but they do, um, I've,
2: well, that 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 makes sense. You know, yeah. the older the hippie, the more like they don't they they actually want to. They they were traumatized by the by the Red Scare and the Cold War. I mean, they don't want to be identified as being some radical anti capitalist group.
1: No, exactly. They go yeah. they go around uh, mostly. What they do is they do homeless activism because they themselves mm-hmm. were at some we're point home. or another homeless. Yeah. So they have a that's their mutual aid is they do that. They take donations. They don't take, they generally don't take cash donations unless you say, Hey, I don't have yeah. any of the supplies, but here, if you want to go buy some, they do that because they don't take cash donations because then if they, cause they are an organization of sorts, even if they mm-hmm. don't have an official title. Sure. There's, there's a uh, ways that taxes can get back to you and all that stuff. But <laughs> yeah. if they can, if they can just write it off saying, no, I just use it to buy groceries then, you know, that's fine. But yeah. once you well, start... Food Not
2: Bombs chapters, see so their name, but they are... Un... Like, if, as long as you remain unaffiliated, you don't incorporate, you don't do anything <laughs> that a organization would do, like rent property or something, then, yeah, the, you can stay unaffiliated, you know, which which gives you that freedom. Yeah. Uh, still have a name, but I guess they don't feel like they need one. But uh, in Albany, we had um the Homeless Action Committee, which probably did all of this. And eventually they bought a building and they have a building and their main service is to have a van where they drive around and they kind of have a route of every person who's homeless because they have their usual spot and they basically drop off uh, care stuff for, for
0: them. Yeah.
2: So they go to where the homeless are. They don't force the homeless to go to some place to pick up, you know, water.
1: No, absolutely. And that's, uh, that's the hardest thing for a lot of homeless people too, is because, on top of you know just transportation issues and all that stuff
2: Yeah let's not, let's not I I I had to I don't want to digress too much No um, yeah but I just wanted... we could go on forever about homelessness
1: Oh yeah no I just wanted to mention that oh. like that's like the closest we got to yeah. like a socialized a socialized sure. way of like doing things you know not not focused on the
2: the corporate I, the capitalist I gotcha. Yeah 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 mutual aid collectives are um yeah are are close Okay, so once we um, develop the coordinator class consciousness, it's possible we begin to address this crisis by identifying its source of power and developing a vision for an alternative economy that removes that power source. Something that no socialist enterprise really does, though I believe, kind of libertarian municipal, municipalism—you know, what they do in Rojava or in the Zapatista zone—they have kind of worked out. That they're, they're, it's pretty horizontal. Pretty horizontal. But anyway, this is exactly what Albert and Handel have done in their development of the participatory economic model, sometimes shortened, mostly shortened to Paracom, which is offered as a vision for a classless and sustainable alternative to both capitalism and the 20th century socialism that they call coordinatorism. But before moving on to describe and discuss it overall, how it could it, and how could it have global unionism, I first need to briefly explain the power source of the coordinator class, which is, uh, as they call it, the corporate division of labor. Many people, especially those from a Marxist background, so this is like Albert and Handel, they don't call themselves Marxists, but they're definitely from they're trained Marxists. But they've changed the terms. They've I think they've they moved they're post marxist I guess you can call them, uh, without being like but not being like anti Marxist. Right. So it seems to confuse the idea of, um, but those of a Marxist background confuse the idea of coordinator class being the same as the middle class or the petty bourgeois or that of bureaucracy. This is a mistake that most likely results from the limitations of a Marxist framework. First, there's the notion of the middle class. Really, it says nothing about anything, which is not the case with the concept of coordinator class. So whenever any Democrat says like, don't you hate it, don't you hate it, uh, misanthrope, when you hear a Democrat or or even progressive talk of saving the middle class and not workers?
1: Yeah, yeah, I do. They don't
2: mention working class at all. Nope. Like... They just say, the middle class, we we got to save the middle class. I think even Bernie did this to some extent, didn't he? Well, and I
1: think that comes from like a misunderstanding of the working class anymore and the middle class. They think that the middle class is still the working class, which it's not. The middle class is like, yeah. I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that none of them are working class. I'm sure there's a. I'm good, sure there's plenty point. of them.
2: Well, they're all workers, and that's the point of we are in the 99 percent that they're still wage slaves. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that that was the point of that slogan. Yeah, uh, I covered that in my class one uh, last month. But anyway, but I think like that's so regarding. Yeah. yeah so gar- regarding the petty bourgeois, like capitalists, they derive their economic power via private ownership. Think you know homeowners associations. After this is not the case with coordinator class, though. As for the bureaucracy, it is not clear exactly what is meant by this, but the concept is not usually presented to mean a group of economic actors with their own class interests, as in the case with the coordinator class, though people do talk of the bureaucracy as being like this institution of, of its own interests. Something to think about. So as always suggested above, coordinator class delivers its, derives its power, not from ownership, but instead by their monopoly on empowering tasks within the economy, you know, information control. So the question becomes, what economic institution allows this monopoly to occur? The answer offered by Albert and Handel is the corporate division of labor. So the division of labor, corporate one, results from a specific formulation of jobs (coughs) in which some are made up of tasks that are more empowering than others, For example, think of a hospital where you have workers that clean all day and those that do surgery, although I think they're both doing basically a repetitive task or a task. So I would actually replace the surgeon with the administrator that gets paid three times more than the surgeon. Right. Uh, So this uneven formulation of jobs creates a corporate division of labor, which in turn allows the coordinator class to monopolize their empowering tasks within the economy. From this analysis, we can see that if we want to move beyond the class system and towards a meaningful economic democracy, we must not only reject and replace private ownership, which is just communism you know, overall, but also the corporate division of labor. That otherwise we would be uh, moving towards kind of the Leninist Marxist state, and no, and nobody in America is really a statist. I mean, there are some, but yeah. It's, it's more like state is a tool to collectivize,
0: yeah. or
2: to do the to make the commons. Uh, so this, along with other additional institutional proposals for a classless economy, is what Paracom offers. So participatory economics goes like so. So to understand, so now that we understand this root cause of a socialist crisis, or at least um, you know one of the things, um, we can see that we want classlessness. That, that's kind of you know goal number one there. Right. We need not only an alternative to private ownership, which would be some form of commons, but also an alternative to the corporate division of labor, which is what Paracom focuses on. It kind of takes it as a granted that the economy has been put in the commons. I want to say that outright. So I think any kind of mass movement where we're taking power, doing a revolution, and we're making the economy a commons, this is kind of the, the thing you do regarding labor policy. Like, now that you have the commons, how do we do work without re- replicating hierarchy? Right. Um, without it just being a mess of collectives using markets, which is where you get market anarchism. And I'm like, but markets create hierarchy of buying power uh, or, or something else like that. So it's made up of one, two, three, four. Okay, they give four parts, but it's it's more like five with the first one being the commons. Right. But here's the four that are kind of new. Uh, so the first is um, worker and consumer councils that are self-managed. So as an alternative to private ownership and the tyranny that accompanies this, the Paracom model proposes self-managed worker and consumer councils, sort of council communism, as so are called, but this is different, but it's the same tool. In a Paracom Everyone belongs to a worker or a consumer council, which they self-manage. Self-management is a principle that guides decision-making within the councils and defines as, as follows, that people have a say in decisions in proportion to how much the outcome of that decision impacts that, which is a, which is one of those things I repeat over and over when it comes to like describing direct democracy to people. Like, oh, we all can't have the same say because some people know more than others, or some things don't affect you. I'm like, exactly. It doesn't... They don't have... They have a proportional say. So if it impacts you a hundred times more than Trump or, you know, down the street, then you will have a hundred times more votes or more say. The, I think the, the metaphor used by Michael Albert, uh, which I liked, was you're at, a, you're at a job and you have a radio on your desk. Your radio, the music you play... Can be heard by everyone in the room and so everyone should have an equal say in what music you're playing because it affects them if it's the picture on your desk and only you can see it and it only affects you what picture is there then that's a decision that is that you have i mean that that you have proportional power over that
1: yeah no absolutely
2: okay so following this so far part part one is worker councils which can be like co-ops or you know uh, collectives and consumer council, which is the same thing, but cons- consumers. And there are such things as consumer unions that can, on uh, you know, sue companies when uh, when things go wrong or when a product is uh, dangerous or um, you know. And it, it would be interesting to have consumer councils, consumer unions, which we don't really have strong ones in America, though I think there is one, but I've never heard of them. Right? They're they're not like they don't have a public a presence in our consciousness
1: they're like the lawyers and stuff that kind of like get together and say okay well and like i think that i think that's why they get a lot of like the heat as ambulance chasers because the consumer Mm -hmm. unions are like well this product's bad we want to protect our consumers and then like of course the corporation's going to be like oh well they just want the money which of course everyone wants money but that's not the point
2: I think if, if consumer, I think, yeah, consumer unions are like advocacy groups because they're funded by God, who knows where foundations, I guess. And, but they're never, they're, they're not due paying organizations. So they don't have the money to fight corporate, uh, corporate megacorps. No, not, not by themselves. Like right. they can, they can do advocacy. They can, they can kind of fight for a ban on microplastics and lipstick. Like I seen them. Um, they can't, they can't fight effectively for a right to repair in phones.
1: No, definitely the right to repair stuff. That's well, I mean, that's a whole different subject. But like,
2: I've seen a couple. But something a consumer union would like fight for would be their number yeah. one issue. Oh yeah,
1: I was reading about a consumer union actually, and they do. If something is bad enough, like when the dang uh rockin' plays were t- causing like those child deaths, I know that like it was a consumer union that got the lawyers to get in there and basically force a ah, recall. I see. Yeah, so mm-hmm. there is there is now, some, in like, this
2: context yeah. Yeah, there is some Now in like, this context, a consumer union is actually like like how a union is mostly for producers, right? It's not really to keep the uh, producers accountable. It's actually to do the consumption. Gotcha. So a consumer council is your actual like local retail coalition. Gotcha. So that makes sense. The, to to flesh it out in the second half, which is upcoming, I suppose. But they're going to they they run the stores. Like they're the, like, like in the utopian things, or it's usually an alien invasion movie, like the host, where it's just like the store is just store and like everything's on the shelf and you can just walk in and take whatever you need. Like that's a, that's a consumer council. So anyway, um, next, ne- ne- the second one is, is kind of the important one for, um, the next two are based on like breaking the corporate division of labor. So the next one is the balanced job complex. So, as an alternative to the corporate division of labor, the Paracom model offers the balanced job complex, a BGC. I haven't used that um, acronym, but whatever. So, in a Paracom, everyone has a job, or for the most part, who needs or wants one. And everybody's job is made up of an equal balance of empowering (coughs) and and desirable tasks. This, uh, so the, the balance of empowering and the disempowering. So... The whole, and this this comes up like I, I think this is something that Destiny would harp about when when um deba- going through his debating leftist arc, yeah. Of like you can't have workplace management or, or economic democracy. Who will do the who do the chores? Who will take out the trash or or something like that? Or like the janitor can't make decisions for the office, right? So everyone in the office does a little bit of the janitorial duties. Just like a classroom where, well, not this isn't always the case, but like, you know, in an cl- old, old-timey classroom where each of the students does one of the chores. Right. Um, at the end of the day, and it takes 10 minutes to basically clean everything instead of one person an hour.
1: I look at it as like uh, living um, with people, too, because like everyone in the house, it's like, okay, someone's got to do the dishes. If I do it now, you're going to do it tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of like everyone does a little bit... Everyone does a little bit. Everyone just tr- contributes, even if it's not yes. necessarily the most fun job. We all have. And no always. one feels
2: put upon. No one's put upon to do more than another. Exactly. So it's um, th- there's there's obviously backlashes of like, you can't have a surgeon doing cleanup duty. Uh, he's because he could be doing more surgeons. Well, we're talking about an economy with a commons where everyone's getting a college education or something close to it or equivalent. We're going to have more surgeons because right now we have a cap on surgeons. Right. Capitalism puts a cap on professionals. They you know, not have people who can have them and be paid well and whatever. So without all of these capitalistic nuances, I suppose, a lot of these issues go away or whatever. So anyway. Yeah. So this, it should be noted, still allows for specialization while simultaneously eradicating the elitism that re- results from the co- corporate division of labor. Because say the surgeon is still doing 80% surgery. They're just doing their 30- 20%. Cleanup, or and the, or, and the janitor does eighty percent uh cleaning, and then twenty percent bookkeeping. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that way, when when the meeting the to vote on something occurs, he knows what the books are like. Or he knows what the finances are like. So anyway, let's see. Okay, so combined these two new institutions remove the power source of the capitalist class and a coordinator class. Referring to the councils and the, and the job complex, <laughs> complex jobs, you call them. So replacing them with institutions that generate classlessness. However, they in themselves do not constitute a full working model. So in addition to a self-managed councils and, and job complexes, Paracom model proposes two more. The first is basically how value is is uh, disseminated.
1: Yeah, okay.
2: The first is uh, how wade, wages technically, quote-unquote wages. Right. remuneration for effort and sacrifice. How people, like, what are people pay, paid? Like, what, what's the basis that people are paid? Currently, this could be debated, I guess, we're paid based on the value we generate for capitalists. <laughs> that is why a pop star can be paid what they are or a, a musician slash sports player and a janitor is always going to be pay, paid the lowest or, or a, a teenager or something. That you know they're not generating quote unquote value. Now, of course, we know better. We know that all workers are the ones generating all the value, and that a capitalist or someone who's shifting numbers around on Wall Street isn't generating any actual value. Or at least they're, they're generating value in for capitalism or capitalists, but not social or any other kind of value. So there's obviously other ways of measuring value, which is something that in most economic discussions goes out the window. As even socialists or or lefties or maybe just some thinking of liberal liberals will talk of GDP growth and and using GDP to measure things when really that is the capitalist indicator for growth and success, not any other.
1: That frustrates me a lot, too, especially among fellow anarchists. I get a lot of people talking, well, you know, the GDP, the GDP. It's like, who cares? That's not that's not what we're looking i know that's this is kind of a tangent but i, I know but well, why it. would an
2: anarchist care
1: about gdp exactly like that's not the point the point is we need yeah. to focus on eliminating the idea of gdps
2: yeah <laughs> they're, they're they're caring about what capitalists care about yeah and that's that's not being radical at all is it no <laughs> so so instead of uh you know and this is beyond even marx's uh line of um remuneration based on, uh, you know, based on need or ability to work. Um, to each, to each, to what each they their need. ability. Yeah.
1: To each their, uh, from each their ability to each ability. what they need.
2: Yeah. That still has its limitations. Yeah. So here's a, cause is the ability of a sports star, you know, that they're being paid based on their ability anyway. So uh, an alternative to all of that, or, And even, even ones that are just based on ability, we alternative to remunerate. So capitalism is remuneration for ownership and bargaining power. Yes. So the Paracom model offers remuneration for effort and sacrifice. So not only like how much you work or how hard you work, or if you work smarter, not harder, it's also taking into account the sacrifice you make. So if you have more education that counts as a sacrifice if you do work that is more dangerous, that is a sacrifice. Well, so this criteria. So this criteria for remuneration simply states that one, the harder you work, the more economic rewards you should get. I think everyone already assumes that, by the way, but it's not true in capitalism. But that's what everyone wants. But and two, the longer you work, the more economic rewards you receive. Harder or longer. And three, the more onerous the task, the more economic rewards you should receive. So this is – everyone tacitly already believes this, but it's not how our economy works. You do get some reward. You do get some wages for working hard, long, or in an onerous task, but nowhere near the actual social value you create and not based on that because uh, there's no onerousness to working as an executive – uh you're not working very hard if you are um, an academic and you're not working very you know and you're not working very long if um if you're a trader or something
1: no exactly and i feel or like...
2: name, name a name a job that you're only working an hour a day
1: yeah like you know if, if i i guess uh flipping i i've only worked like labor jobs where like i'm either doing construction or i'm doing stuff like that so like that's oh maybe like you know it's all three professional professional podcast be a long
2: day you yeah. work hard and if you're yeah. depending on the work site it's you know hazardous
1: oh yeah no i I'm, mean
2: if, if you if you're dealing with fiberglass or uh digging
1: yeah no but uh, you so know, that's we can even yeah. go like podcasters only work like an hour a day and then you get like joe rogan making millions of dollars so yeah exactly which I'm not exactly. saying so, Yeah, I'm not hmm? saying he doesn't work hard. I, I I run a podcast and it's not easy. But it's, sure. you know, it's But it's um, not owner
2: there's not much sacrifice. Yeah,
1: it. exactly. And I think we need You're to safe like, in a
2: room.
1: I think we need to take that, put a pin in that for a second, because I do want to mention that not only is this a misnomer as far as like capitalism goes, it's a misnomer in all work. Like you can say, Well, mm-hmm. what about community work? there are people who have been doing community work for years who aren't getting any recognition. And then,
2: yeah. Ascent, yeah.
1: You know, and then there exactly. are people who are getting like, who go out and do like an hour of community service and they are put in the papers because of their status. So we need to understand that like, it doesn't even work in a non-capitalist set in a co- non-capitalist sense. It works. Yeah. I know
2: that. Yeah. Cause it's still in capitalism. You can yeah. be as non-capitalist as you want, but as long as the super, the base is still capitalist. It's going to be capitalism.
1: Exactly. And that
2: is kind of the... I think it's a strike against gradualism. It's a strike against reformism of any kind, really. Yeah. Which is why I mentioned that like reformism is the carousel. You're just going around in a circle. Revolution's the boss.
1: No, exactly. I think one thing I want to mention, too, is that...
2: Go
0: ahead.
1: Part of the reason I'm such an anti-work activist... It's, it's not because I don't like work. I actually as crazy as it sounds, I actually do like to work. I like going to my job, not necessarily because I like my job, but because I like helping people. I like providing a service. But it's the fact mm-hmm. that, like, we're not rewarded. Like, if you want yeah. to do something, you should be able to. Like, I want to go out and cook. I should be able to cook. I shouldn't have to go through, like, all these hoops to do it. And obviously, like, I need to be safe, but I don't, I don't get, like, that mindset. I don't get to do that because of all that, I do my job. I enjoy doing my job, but I'm not rewarded for what I do. I do more tasks, I do more jobs than my actual job description. So at this point, I feel. Oh, of
2: course. Yeah, everyone does. Oh. I mean, it's it's that trope of if everyone was actually paid for all the actual work they do, whether it's in the home <laughs> uh, that would be done by could be done by a, um, a service worker, then everyone would be a millionaire.
1: No, exactly.
2: Or, or at least a uh, hundred, have a hundred thousand dollar salary.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um,
2: and that's where that's where the um, basis. I mean, it's one of the basis for giving a UBI out. Everyone does basic chores and work and labor um, all the time in all different ways. So, even just to compensate the community worker or the person who's retired doing community stuff, the and socially valuable labor, the UBI compensates them for that. At least in a basic way. Yeah. And that way, it's something to demand based on, like, no, we actually deserve a UBI. It's not just something that's, like, an economic fix or a Band-Aid. It's like, no, we actually deserve it. We need it. Like, that. we get it. Now, it's also, uh should be mentioned, um, we'll go into this in the second hour, basically. Yeah. Because it'll be mentioned, like, it's assumed that a UBI, you know, a lot of other socialist or social democrat stuff is already in place. Paracom doesn't replace any of that. Right. So the last part in the last few minutes of this hour, um, and then we'll go deeper, is the actual planning process, participatory planning to replace markets. All right. This replaces markets, which even a lot of lefties don't want to let go of markets. I don't know why. I think it's because of it's a form of individualism or maybe a lack of imagination that uh, markets somehow protect individual freedom, that if you don't have markets, you must have top down planning. But I think we, if you believe in worker democracy, then you probably tend to believe in democratic planning. So an alternative to competitive markets and central planning, the Paracom model offers a participatory planning process. Cooperative, in which producers, via via their councils, and consumers, via their councils, propose and revise their economic activities in a series of rounds until they arrive on a mutually agreed plan. So imagine, to boil it down, a neighborhood worker, uh, consumer council orders this much toilet paper. The factory that does paper products, co-op, whatever, uh, that workers' council says, well, based on the resources at hand and the prices that have been fixed or, or at least proposed, We can make this much toilet paper. It's also based on how much work we want to do. We don't want to work more and say four days a week. So, this is how much toilet paper we're going to make. And if those numbers don't match, then those two groups need to revise their plan until it is okay, we're going to make this much TP. You're going to use this much TP. We're also going to make, we're going to factor in 10% surplus for emergency diarrhea. Right. Or this people need, if they need extra TP, it will be there. But that should probably be baked into consumer plans of like, oh, we want 10% surplus on top of what we need or on top of the amount of TP we used last year kind of thing. And that's where your taxes then just become what we what we used last year. An right. actual accounting of this is what we actually used in electronics and consumer goods and food and so on. We finished going through the first kind of – The basic versions of the four institutions of Paracom, participatory economics. And now we're going to just the wrap up from this writer, this trade union guy. So so Paracom can form a global unionism. Paracom is an easily understandable economic model that requires no formal training in economics to grasp, is therefore accessible to a majority of people, including trade union activists, with an interest in organizing for economic justice the world over. A big part of the initial work that would need to take place in overcoming the twofold crisis, not only of socialism but of trade union movement, is to popularize the paracom model within organized labor. So we plant the seeds. Uh, as awareness of and support of paracom model grows within organized labor and other trade unionists, would undoubtedly use this knowledge to inform the structure of their own organization. You know to have more balanced jobs within it. And, uh, and, and by the way, um, Michael Albert and, and sub and company, they, uh, when they started their own publishing company, they employed balanced jobs or maybe came up with the idea from how they did things in their own hippie way. Cause in communes where you share all the chores.
0: Right. So it's
2: like, they were all equals. There was no hierarchy in their you know, and the same with, uh, direct democracy. It's, It'll, it works well when everyone has the same level of information, which you get from mostly the anarchist way of disseminating the information. So they can use it to inform their own campaigns when initiating economic justice. This dynamic would mean that with every victory won by a Paracom informed unionist movement, it would take the unions a step closer to becoming a fully functioning, self-managing worker council. In this sense, Global unions could be understood as self managed worker councils in an embryonic form, planting the seed of the future in the present, you know, building the new world in the shell of the old, which is is slightly different in by having the vision. You know, if, if co-ops when they start now have the vision that eventually there'll be a co op federation that can supplant or start doing economics outside of the capitalist mode of production but so far i i don't see that vision existing so much like how would they form how would they operate outside of capitalist mode of production if there's enough co-ops you know this co-op economy i don't see that expressed very much
1: yeah i i totally understand that and like from my understanding of co-ops it's really just a lot of them are just so like community based that there's no like there's no global there's no like i won't say global takeover because that sounds like a capitalist Mm. thing but like (laughs) there's no way to like stretch out and like reach out and that's i've i've been yeah i've been actually in the process of researching and getting a plan together for my own co-op and part of my whole goal is to reach out and have that federation of co-ops to i mean obviously we're not going to be able to compete with some of the heavy hitters but like
2: yeah the modrigan Mondragon is a federation of co-ops, I believe. And that's why they're kind of a model. But I pointed out that this, I think it was a Wobbly pointing this out, like that was making an anti-co-op case by Wobbly and an IWW person. Right. And they were making the they, they were pointing out that like Franco loved Mondragon. Like they got medals on how they developed this rural, poor area that capitalism just let die and and they're like oh great now they won't revolt against our regime good job
0: yeah (laughs) which is
2: what all reformism kind of leads to people not revolting which is why a lot of people love reforms because they stop violence slash overthrow or upheaval but it also prevents other alternatives from actually getting a chance
1: basically reform is you're miserable but you're slightly less miserable so it's fine
2: more or less I well I have a particular uh, little comic where it's like two two men are rolling out a carpet and the carpet has like reform on it and then there are two men with corruption labels on them and they're rolling the carpet up behind them yeah but but there is such a thing as a And I like this this term because it's just weird enough. The non-reformist reform. The transition from a capitalist or coordinatorist economy towards a participatory or a democratic one cannot happen overnight in a single step. Yes, Paracom is a revolutionary vision. But to reach it requires a transition that can only come via reforms. So this is on the other hand. But this insight has led to the development of some advocates call the strategy of non reformist reforms, but which has meant a series of changes step by step informed by the vision of a new new social system that ultimately leads to the new one. Okay. So this is where it's like having the vision helps you have different kinds of steps that are non reformist, that are not just making things better within the capitalist mode of production but like building dual power to replace it. Right. I think a non-reformist reform would be like nationalization.
1: Okay. So that makes, that makes
2: so, sense. So, so at it's, it's the last conclusion here. paracom form global unionism could engage in such a non-reformist reform activity. And in so doing plant the seeds. So basically instead of unions, just fighting for better conditions and better pay and the usual stuff, that where it's like, look, we're not challenging the ownership, but we just you know want a better deal. No, when the union the union wants to buy out the company or it wants to be the company, yeah. and then it's a worker council. So this I've argued would help overcome the twofold crisis, actually highlighted by lifelong trade unionist Dave Gal Dan Gallen. Furthermore, I've argued that such organizational efforts as those briefly described in the above could play a crucial part in mounting a much-needed serious challenge to the international system of cap globalization. So there's that. So um, I'll get into actually how that can actually be done or how it's facilitated in my talk version. So we'll take a short break, um, or we'll just pretend we're taking a break, and we'll see you on the other side of the hour um, with my my, uh, guest, The Mayhem Calling. Or that's the name of your show, yeah. Uh, but... T misanthrope.
1: Yeah, but you can you can call me the mayhem calling. I don't mind. Everyone everyone does. Okay. <laughs>
2: yeah, everyone, yeah. Even and, and the they people... can call Even people Mayfair. can call me three left side gas. But yeah, I go with my my real name. So I don't, I wasn't I was never cool enough or creative enough as a kid to have a nickname. Um, most people at least make their own uh, in puberty, but I didn't. I, I don't know why. I, mean, I have no.
1: Is your official name Dan? Yeah. Oh, so that's okay. So you're not even like a Daniel or anything like that.
2: Oh well, no, it is. But I, I guess um...
1: you can. I can guess you can argue. Shorting my
2: name—it's nickname... name, such a simple thing. It's not a
1: nickname. Hey, you know, you know, even even if sh- any amount yeah. of effort put into a nickname makes it a nickname, even if the effort like, is. Think of...
2: Minimum. Think of how Vosh, like, his 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 screen name comes from, like, a screen name he made, Voshy Boy or something. And, and same with Destiny. It's just like, oh, I thought it was a cool name when I was 13. I yeah. didn't have any such impulse to make myself a nickname. I came across a, an email address in my job, which was Goldfish Killer and that was um when i got him on the phone i asked him about it cuz it made me chuckle and he said yeah yeah it was just a dumb name i was mean to change it <laughs> i said no you don't have to change it it's cool <laughs>
1: yeah it's funny i have a if if we want we can go into the we can go into the history of my nickname later on but right now let's uh let's enjoy the break sure
2: don't try to take
0: this from me don't try to take this from me
2: back um, from a little break, uh, back with uh, Misanthrope, Mayhem Calling, special guest as we talk, Paracom, or at least I cover the short and deeper version of it, and uh, he reacts just to see if it's, uh, this is something people can follow, especially if they're already a radical, uh, which is the usual audience. <clears throat> like, is a debate of, like, what kind of post-capitalism are we fighting for? Which is kind of an important question, which I'm not sure is asked enough, uh, especially in democratic socialist circles. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, they 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 admit they don't want to overturn capitalism, which is odd since anti capitalism is very very popular. Um, but they don't want to push too far because there's kind of a limit to how much they can go in our current power structure, but anyway.
0: Okay. So
2: let me bring up my own stuff paracon talk so i don't i want to avoid redundant information here so let's see i frame it as an alternative to markets and authoritarian planning Uh, fighting for social and economic change can seem too big for any of us which can lead to hopelessness and apathy but as an antidote to that is to have a vision gradual or otherwise which can help us see where we might want to go as we fight to obtain goals so I make the case in this talk of why replacing the entire economic system. Any left-wing radical does not need to hear this. Okay. Um, then there's the question brought up in the books of talking about what an economy is, or what that economy should have goals. At the moment, capitalism has the goal of like what? What is capitalism's goal? Any guesses? So, do
1: you want the stated goal, or do you want the actual goal behind the behind the curtain? The the, the well,
2: I, I guess there. I guess there is a stated goal of like maximizing human capacity or something. But yeah,
1: like the actual the, goal of communism is, or not communism? Sorry, capitalism.
2: Capitalism. Yeah. yeah.
1: The goal actual- of
2: communism is always statelessness and yes. classes. Yes.
1: Yes. The capitalist goal is basically endless consumption, and I know like that's kind of dumbing it down, but that is basically the goal like you want yeah we have yeah. like labs like making steak they're making air in bottles they're doing that on purpose because they know resources are finite so they want to maximize the consumption they want to maximize profit they want to maximize yeah. just Endless consumption. that's, that's yeah. actually a
2: pretty good answer because it's, it's something to ask uh, your local capitalist uh what is the goal and they'll probably say, "Oh, to maximize everyone's benefit, that's what markets do." It's, it's, and 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 more people realize that as as things chug along, especially if you just got just take clim- the climate crisis uh, on its own.
1: No, absolutely. Like, um, I, I,
2: I I don't think uh, <laughs> killing ourselves. I think causing a mass six 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 extinction, which may include us eventually, uh, doesn't maximize human benefit or, or whatever. But anyway, um, so let's define. Yeah, no, go on.
1: Sorry, I just want to say, like, that's the funniest thing about like any sort of like company that talks about environmentalism, like, oh, we're environmentally friendly. It's like, okay, then stop being a capitalist, stop being a profit-driven company.
2: That's yeah, the I mean, if you way. can be net zero, if you can be net zero, but see, the thing is, they are saying that, but by net zero, they mean buying, preventing a forest from being cut down. They're using potential pollution as a way of offsetting the pollution they create and then saying that that's net zero
1: or they're doing the. Text. Okay. I don't want to
2: digress. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to dig, Yeah. Or I don't want to digress too much. Cause that's, I've covered that. So, so it's about, let's define what the economy is or rather what we want out of the economy. What are our goals? So as leftists, any kind of leftists, our goals should kind of basically think we could describe them economic democracy which doesn't imply majority rule, because conversely, some def- decisions do affect everyone equally. Instead, the goal is participatory one of health management, where, uh, which is the capacity to analyze and evaluate the consequences of our action. It means decision-making power is proportioned to those affected, right? So economic justice would be goal two. And, and then I go into different versions of economic justice. So there's a liberal view that um, and then I, I go through the different ways of rewarding labor as a way of uh, g- getting into the, um, num- you know, part three. Yes, which is that there's a liberal view that the reward is equal to labor, which is sound good on its face, but it suffers from the same reason that socialists reject income based on income based on ownership. This is because most differences in people's personal productivity depend on factors over which they don't have much control. Uh, For example, the value of what people produce depends largely on the number of people working in their category of labor, changes in consumer demand affect it, quantity, uh, quality of machines or nature. Most importantly, the intrinsic qualities of people themselves. You know, oh, we're all different, so we can't have an equal society. So, but what it does destroy is the moral imperative for the view that we can reward people based on how strong they are or how smart they are, analytical. Um, It's not a moral argument for paying those people more. Just as we would oppose the inheritance lottery of a billionaire's grandson, we should do so the same for the genetic lottery winner, like those who are pro-athletes or pop stars. All right. What can we say? Well, of course, some pop stars are just family members of other older pop stars. Correct. Correct. Um, um, So that way, it's another form of inherited wealth. So what we can control is the amount of effort we expend, the sacrifices we make day to day. So on, so on. Okay. So, goal three is solidarity. There's, there's actually not. There's, there's a lot of goals here, but one is solidarity that uh, we have a goal promoting general concern for others and community. The goal four is diversity. Diversity refers to people having a large variety of choices to fulfill their needs and desires. Since humans show a large variety of preferences and lifestyle, the best life for one is not necessarily the best for another. Variety adds to the richness of life, so a participatory economy rejects conformity, homogenization, and regimenting. The other benefit of valuing diversity is that we don't place all our eggs in one basket. It is important to experiment with different ideas and viewpoints in case one turns out to be wrong. It allows for what we call it innovation. But we all, we need the goal of efficiency. Number five is efficiency. First, to clarify the goal, that efficiency is not the same as profitability. It is getting the job done in the best way. We're often told that the virtue of free markets is that they are efficient. But what is efficient about an economy that results in global warming, financial crises, booms and busts, and persistent unemployment? We should value efficiency because we don't like to waste scarce resources and our time performing. Uh, if you if you are aware of um, David Graver's book, "Bull Jobs," we don't want to waste our time doing bull jobs jobs with no social value all of which happens to be which all happens in the current status quo if you're uh, if you haven't if you're not aware of david graver it's like 40 percent of jobs are like bulbs um
1: yeah i've heard that i've heard that uh i've heard that yeah. and uh i would argue that the amount is more but you know i will get into mm-hmm. that a little bit later if you want to
2: If we have time uh, yeah so number number six and the last one is of course sustainability to have an economy that can go on another six generations, just put it that way. But in Paracom, the burn of proof is to use natural resources, to use natural resources is on those who wish to use them. So then I go through the elements, number one being the commons, social ownership, and that when one is, when allocation happens, it's user rights. Your credit or your, um, your wages are in the form of user rights. Democratic councils, go through those, you know, workers, consumers. What else did I read about? I write about that, that I take from the books. The consumption rights of a council invokes are constrained based on an individual member's income. Any member of society who is excused from work for reasons such as illness, retirement, or being a child, will have a consumption allowance determined by society as a whole, you know, UBI. This process can also remove the bias against consumer sovereignty in which entities turn out products in a take-it-or-leave-it fashion, allowing for some real freedom of choice. For larger requests and needs, groups of councils were organized federations on the neighborhood, city, region, and national level. This nesting of councils is needed because different decisions impact various sections of a population differently. And regardless of the level, transaction costs of making such decisions are lowered. Transaction cost. I think that's something used by economics a lot. Meaning the effort it takes to divvy up public resources evenly and fairly is thus more simple and direct. For example, of a single city, a single federation of neighborhood con- consumer councils would have reps that would discuss and vote on the relative merits of a citywide public good, be they a park or a fire engine. Such reps could be rotated, subject to recall, and instructed by a lower level to do the right thing. At the national level, similar reps would then discuss planning on construction of national level public goods, infrastructure, science, funding, healthcare, and defense or even defense. But, you know, yeah, but maybe in the form of a of a world peace, you know, international world, I think defense would form uh, like we have ceremonial armies that duke it out with paintball guns. Yeah, I mean, like for fun, like for fun.
1: You gotta, you gotta, you gotta do something, something to get that.
2: It's, it's pay, it's pay-per-view.
1: That's, I would actually. You know, to, go, to, to get, I really agree. The like aggressive the, uh...
2: tendencies, you know, to get out the aggressive tendencies. And, and because there's no stakes ever, like as many people could like volunteer as possible to do it. Oh, absolutely. Really big, really big thing of it. And uh, I even think, uh, like it's, it's, it's totally fiction, but there's an anime called girls in tanks where there's a sport of, uh, of tank battles. And uh, I think uh, it would still take, or like it would still take a lot of resources, but it would probably be a fraction of what we spend now to have uh, tank battles as a sport.
1: Uh, you know, <laughs> um, like yeah,
2: I mean, yeah. we could. They're, they're using paintball rounds; they don't need the armor, and so they they could they don't need the extremely. They don't have to burn free fuel. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know, like I, I actually kind of like the idea of having tank battles. We can make it like battle bots. We get a team, we get the team. Yeah, or the whole exactly, military, exactly. And then just like they exactly. build the best tank possible and they just duke it out.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we can be patriotic um, or it's a team of tanks. And they use paintball rounds, you know, shells that when i impact, it's just, oh, you, know, you got covered in the purple paint, yeah. you're out. Yeah. Um, kind of thing. Do it like, um, you know. Yeah. Do it. That's, that's the only... explosions, then I guess like we could do simulated war where it's just like, it's like an air show. But with tanks.
1: yeah, basically, you know, like if the tank, if the tank is covered in uh paintballs, there's a little trigger inside that blows up. It goes boom.
2: Yeah, 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 like it starts smoking. It just smoke machines to, like goes off. Yeah.
1: That that's the only good use of drones, <laughs> by the way. Not to strike hmm. people, but just to make fun tank fun tank battles that are just fun. That, that's exactly. that's the only way I would that's the only way I would advocate for drones.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, to 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 shoot the video. So anyway, um, moving on. Uh, Let's see. So that's the councils. A little more on balanced jobs. Let's see. I wrote that, you know, it's disempowering empowering work that consists of repetitive or mundane labor, while empowering work consists of professional technical labor. The uneven distribution of these tasks creates hierarchical economies, which creates a minority that tends to monopolize information. So we already covered this. Basically creates uneven meetings, and eventually it's like, oh, you you don't know anything, so you don't <laughs> even need to be in the meeting. How many times? I mean, and and, and government officials even like will be like, well, this movie, this this meeting doesn't have to be public because no one has the information we have. No one knows what we're talking about. So why is it matter for public or not? And so you have to kind of sue a few time to- a bit or be attentive. To enforce what uh, New York has, which is a public meetings law, that all public meetings need to actually be accessible. But during the pandemic, you had a lot of people, a lot of these committees, they were just having Zoom calls and they weren't making them accessible. You couldn't watch them. They weren't recording them. They were breaking public meeting law. Yeah. Or they didn't um, send out a link. uh, You couldn't join the Zoom call as a spectator. So more on remuneration uh, the consumption for effort so, so this is like how, okay people are you know paid by or granted user rights based on effort and sacrifice well how, how does that work so, so no you're about to ask so we we know an economy should be fair practical criterion for distributing income quantitative information is necessary for any allocation system to function at least to be efficient so in line of our previous discussion on justice Let's ask ourselves why a surgeon is paid more in a miner, Even though one has put in the effort of going through mad school, the other sacrifices their body and risks their life, and no one can argue the effort in mining. So Paracom seeks to compensate workers according to their effort and a sacrifice. I was just explaining that part. But now on the effort writing. On the next part. Workplaces would be asked to, pro- to provide members effort ratings. This means that those who choose to make a greater personal sacrifice at work, like I'm gonna work two extra hours or I'm gonna work a lot like hard or whatever. But now measuring this effort is left to be democratically chosen by the the workers. It's you know collective, it's a co-op. So so they're choosing how to allocate effort ratings like, you know, you get five points for getting for staying an extra hour or whatever. No rulers, just people making their own rules. For example, a workplace might want to set up an effort rating committee, set rules for the number of members, the length of service, rules for rotation, whatever. The only restriction a worker council would have on assigning these ratings, you know, to prevent abuse, would be to cap the amount of effort ratings they could put out. You know, they say, like, you only have 100 credits, basically, and then you're deciding how to allocate them within your workplace kind of thing. Okay. No, and the cap is determined by like that agreed upon plan because it's in the plan that you you do kind of is what's determined how much work can not only can be done, but like is going to be done. So it's like this is the amount or this is the amount of consumption that can happen. So these are the amount of credits. So we're assigning every workplace based on their number of members. This is how many credits you can give out or their effort ratings or whatever. Yeah. So uh, a little more word on consumption, which is from the books. On saving credits for later, which is simply using less, so no different than using cash. They are a person's rights, and like anything earned, they cannot be taken away. So can can be saved like money. But our currency, without any compound interest or investment potential, and thus there's no incentive for extreme accumulation, you know, you, you use it or you're just not using it. And if there's no point in not using it, unless you're saving for a time, the, uh, you know, use, I don't know, car, I don't know, something cool, right. get your own tank. No, exactly. Borrowing credits can be done through your consumer council, which acts as a loan office, instead of doing it from a profit seeking bank. It's your neighbor who's who can best judge whether you can make the commitment to consume less later or to do some more work now. Uh, interest and in risk premiums would be tricky to work out but may not even be needed at all in the islamic world loans simply have a set fee attached this could be done here but there is surely other solutions too so it's it's still like whatever to be determined at a later date right don't have to work every little thing out just like how you know some liberal critics like the say of socialists, like you haven't worked out your utopia or it's utopian. So it can't happen. And there's no point in trying. We have to be realist, capitalist realist. So um, let's see, deciding one's consumption and changing your mind. So the request for consumption that people in their councils make is kind of like a pre-order economy, choosing from a broader list of categories, like a shirt or a bike, the proposal from a consumer council then is, is like a best guess. And so you go to the bike shop and then you get to pick a bike and it can be whatever kind of bike is there. Cause the bike factory made, they decided they're going to make 20 different types of bikes or whatever. Kind of like in Yugoslavia, there was like 30 types of chocolate. Yeah.
0: Okay.
2: So, so that's just covering that part. Um, now for the nitty gritty of the planning, which is kind of, I feel like important because otherwise it's like, When you say you're going to replace markets with something participatory that, that like, well, isn't markets something you participate in? No, because we're not determining prices democratically. We're not determining allocation democratically. Um, Anyway, it's all purchase agents. So anyway, so now that we have commons, workers and councils, how do they coordinate? An economic system at the heart of everything is how it's allocated. So it's participatory, it's horizontal procedure that grants user rights for the commons for production and then balancing it with the earned credits of workers for consumption. So between the two sides is a mediator that the writers, you know, Albert calls the Illiteration Facilitation Board, IFB. So through it, there's four steps to the so mentioned rounds between the consumers and producers. So here's like the here's what a round consists of. So the first step is say this this board. Okay. It's more expansive data collection, but it's not big data. It's big data, but it's not for. Instead of giving it to marketers, it's used to actually determine who needs what. But it's not who needs what actually. It's it's just collecting data to calculate the opportunity cost for natural resources, categories of labor. Capital stacks, which refers to invested equity, and to basically determine an indicative price. But it, opportunity cost is the relative cost of using one thing over another. Okay. Mining granite versus mining uh, shale. Uh, but basically, it's a, it's it's kind of just indicative price. It's not like a set like price forever. It's just the first like it's indicative price.
1: Right. It's how much. But again, how yeah. much they have versus how much is needed, et
2: cetera, et cetera. Yeah, right. What, what's what's the um, amount of oil versus so, the amount we can burn safely? Yeah. So step two is councils then study the prices and the data that the IFB generates, because that's something different from capitalist markets. All this okay. data is, in fact, actually open and accessible Okay. to make their proposals. So... Uh, first, consumers would make the request. So it is, in fact, demand-side economics. Consumers make the requests for goods and services. They demand it, then workers then put in the request for inputs, like what they may need and how many credits based on their effort ratings they would get or they would want. The outputs, like the quality and quality of what they'll make and do, are included, and requests also include intermediate goods third step is then the board adds all of these proposals and then adjusts their estimate for the cost to the degree of access, supply, and demand. So so you have you know, the, work, the the consumers say demand X, and then producers say this could be the supply, like I described with the toilet paper. Right. And it adjusts these estimates. Uh, well, it adjusts the, their estimate for the cost, the prices, based on the supply and demand. So you actually get that actual like neoliberal supply and demand curve for a price. It actually does that instead of the fantasy of assuming a market it does that. Exactly. Which it does. Exactly. So everyone reacts to the new price put out by the board and then they change their proposal as such, you know, like, oh, the consumers want more TP than we were willing to make. We'll have to adjust so that we work another two hours a week. And then this was repeated, uh, with a round being each time a proposal is modified. When, I don't know when they did this, but uh, Albert and Handel, they modeled this process and found that the average number of rounds to reach equ- equilibrium is uh, between 7 and 11. Okay. Like, that's how many times that, with all the unions and all of the stuff, like, they'd be negotiating. But not with each other, right? It's not like political the board facilitates so it's just the data right now so the, the the political decision is what natural resources are available but if we're using the values of sustainability it's probably going to be capped at something
1: right that makes sense uh,
2: yeah so for the approval process for proposals a formula can produce a single variable so as so, so, so to um to make sure like so what counts is like what Proposals are like they have to be approved as being like feasible or moral. How do we do this? Well, he proposes a single variable, which would be a ratio of social benefit over social cost. If it's a producer and if it's a consumer, it's the cost of the goods uh, over their average effort rating, plus any allowance they get. So supplying such a figure doing each round helps people make a socially responsible decision and help them produce proposals in balance with others so it whittles down overly ambitious proposals as well as you know if someone's maybe oh you could actually order more than than you did before so in the ratio is more than 1 it's rejected if it's less that's approved using these ratios if a plan is not in net balance it is sent back for revision in this way it is like everyone in the uh, everyone is the person who says no instead of the board because the plan only works if it can work with everyone else's plan. Human behavior is such, and this is my insertion. I I forget if Paracom put this in or if it's just me writing this. Right. But human behavior is such that if everyone is the bad guy, it is the same as if no one is the bad guy.
1: <coughs> yeah.
2: So with each, I mean, that's how we feel when we're in a community, right? And that's how exactly. we kind of, how we actually not have cancel culture. Like if you're in a group of friends and everybody is, <laughs> like, being a whole. It's accepted that, like, oh, yeah, we're just fooling around. Or this is how we have fun. Exactly. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a pro. But
1: no, no, no. That, that makes know.
2: perfect
1: it's sense. Like, like, like,
2: on... It's not some authority saying your proposal is bad. It's, it's like, look, we have this ratio. And, and this is kind of how a lot of bureaucracy works. And it's maybe... And David Graver's other book, *The um, Utopia of Rules*, about it's a left wing critique of bureaucracy. Yeah, it's that one of the promises of bureaucracy is that it makes things fair, but usually it just reinforces the hierarchies of society that already exist. But one thing that kind of at least when it comes to customer service is like, look, and this is something that uh, if you've ever done any customer service, it's always like, look, you're not. It's not you saying that the customer can't do X or get a refund it's the rules that say <laughs> right and that way they won't get mad at you but they can be mad at the company or mad at their god
1: that's the theory but they are <laughs> that they're always mad. they're at definitely you. mad at
2: you yeah yeah <laughs> it doesn't no help um so maybe, maybe i'm just oh okay whatever cross that's, that out
1: it's 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 a good like that's one thing i just want to like interject real quick that is a good like concept of course you know like and everyone knows it's not your fault. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that like people who work in retail think is that they think that everyone yeah. thinks it's our fault. No, they know it's not our fault. But you are the face they see.
2: Yeah, but see, the board isn't really a face. It's like the big data company, and just so like maybe he's a, like it doesn't. It's not gonna have a face. Like I guess there'll be yeah. people attached, but it's mostly professionals. It's it's, it's got to be a class of people, but they're not a managing class they're not a class with like administrative power they're just the class that is doing labor just like any other yeah group. It's,
1: it's their it's their specific job
2: and that way they're not they're not a class they're just another category of labor yeah the the entryist or the um, the programmer
1: yeah so
2: i'm about at the end of this okay
1: i'll let you finish
2: so with each round Councils can shift their proposals in response to updated info. So the board is pretty hands-off when it comes to telling councils how to fix their proposals. The only And only councils can revise their plan if it is rejected um, as too unjust or too inefficient, meaning autonomy is retained and people can <coughs> self-regulate. Ooh, self-regulate. Yeah, people can actually dun, self-regulate. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so that's the end of that. The, yeah. Uh, that part, anyway. So what was your... um?
1: So, okay, first off, oh. I wanted to, like, hit on the credit system real quick.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, the effort credit. Yeah, Theoretically, it's a good idea, but that's still, that's basically just capitalism. I know, like, there's ways that we can argue it's not. But, like, if I work yeah. overtime at work, I get time and a half. So, what? how is that different than, you know, getting five extra effort credits?
2: Well, I, essentially, I think it isn't, but I think it's pointed out that, there's a cap on the number of effort credits. So eventually you can't do, there's only so much overtime we can do.
1: No, absolutely. And, and I, I understand that to an extent.
2: Or, or there's only amount that the plan will allow you to do. Right. Because at this point, we can't, like, there's actually, like, a maximum. And this is where it comes into, like, the the, the concept that doesn't get buried about in any socialist discourse is the maximum income. Right. It Basically, like, there would be a maximum income. And that's something that because most socialists are market socialists and in markets, you can't put a cap on income. No, because it's still a market. And that's it's like but that's like saying you accept there's going to be a lot of inequality or at least or that your goal is just to reduce it to a point where it doesn't matter. But this is what reduces inequality to where it doesn't matter. Or if there is inequality, it really is based on someone doing overtime because the only way. The other way is the credit, but, but again, like it's actual credit. You get it. You get upfront more user rights, but you get you you have to accept less user rights later.
1: I, I see. I see that, and like it's how do I put it? It kind of feels a lot like if we're going to have effort credits, we might as well yeah. not get rid of the market that we have. We just you know, demo. We just democratize it to a point where it's eliminates inequality and it puts a pay cap but other than that mm-hmm. there's like no reason to get rid of it as you know it could do this get rid of markets you mean or like it it can't get rid of markets as we know them the way that we're describing it it's pretty much just a more democratic version uh-huh.
2: which Cause, yeah cuz i wish socialists could des- like could describe what a socialist market is really like but I suppose that's what the Soviet Union had, and it was kind of pretty inefficient at times.
1: Yeah, and
2: I guess... I think the point is that the economy is... I'm like sorry. Usually, I think people are thinking of a market as being like the ability to go to a store and buy something. That's yeah. not what I'm talking about. A market is referring to... It's referring to how things... It's the mechanism for how things are allocated. Yeah. and And not how things are actually used.
1: Yeah, and that, you know, like, that makes sense right there. That part...
2: It could be, I mean, just having a, a pay cap would be like that non-reformist reform. It's, it's a step towards doing this. Or when it is, if it is ever done, it's done in a different form. It's not done exactly like effort ratings. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of put, saying that you you need these four different institutions to, like, work, to, or something like them working together to have an economy that yeah. isn't dominated by a class over another class.
1: That, not, not, you know, that's like I like the idea as far as it goes, but at the end of the day, it's still just it's just it's still just capitalist light. It's just taking the ideas of capitalism and putting them into a more fair system. Which, you think so? Yeah. Because like basically what it's doing is it's like you still have effort credit. So like there's still going to be the people who are like well, I'm a hard worker. I am still, yeah. you know, like, like with me, I work two jobs and I mean, I've been out of work for a couple of weeks. Not, I wasn't fired or anything. I've just had time off, uh-huh. but you know, like whenever I work, I work two jobs. I'm always working. Then I come home and I do work. I take care of animals. I do my podcast. I do videos for YouTube and all that stuff. People yeah. like they praise that and the goal of socialism should not be to praise hard work it should be to work as little as possible so to have any sort of any sort of like credit system any sort of like any sort of system where you are rewarded for doing more that at the end of the day just makes it like it it.
2: just the everybody. fact that it has that even if the amount of effort ratings and thus the credits you could get at a workplace would be capped
1: yeah even just that alone that's just like okay well you're still gonna be, You're still
2: gonna be that winning. does not make it but that does not make it capitalism though, because you don't get more political power from that.
1: No, you don't get more political I power, mean, but like at the end of the day, capitalists believe that there's no political power in money. If you ask a capitalist, they just say, Oh no, I'm just rich. I have personal power. I don't have political power, even though they're buying the Yeah, but they're bullshitting.
2: But they're bullshitting.
1: They are, but you know, like I'm talking like if you ask a capitalist Just because
2: just because something hasn't con like just because of one th- instance of this that's in common with like how we you know spend money or something i'm I'm using that actually as a way of like identifying that this is something that actually could exist and isn't something that is antithetical to i don't know how we live today in the slightest hmm okay well we can move on though
1: yeah no i just wanted to add like one more thing too go, go ahead so that's part of the reason why i'm part of the anti-work movement it's not yeah. because I don't want people to, like, have that skills, You know, like, there is value in going out and doing stuff and helping people and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, like, effort... Work sucks. sucks. Yeah, work sucks. Effort should not be rewarded for doing more. It should only be personal, like, like personal reward. Like, I feel mm-hmm. good about doing this. I feel good because I put in the work for this. It should not be... A requirement to get more credits. It should not be a requirement to get more money. It should not be a requirement to
2: move forward in life.
1: Which you know, I know maybe
2: what, yeah. I, mean, I know what so you're saying. maybe here. I it, it could help if I went through. So I actually have a whole page here. Okay. On maybe addressing these these issues. So first, uh, I will really labeled it, it concerns. Yeah. So there are many concerns. Let's see for for when the numbers don't make sense to anyone in council proposals are <laughs> on the line. There would be appeal procedures for, you know, councils with the board. There would also be, uh, and the cost-benefit ratio standard can be chosen to put a cap on effort ratings, which in turn also caps inflation. For example, an average cap could be 100 times a council's uh, social cost-benefit ratio. Let's see, something about, okay, let me, let me skip ahead to incentives, which would be the topic, but this is more like a response to more of a liberal Um, topic we're thinking about economics are the incentives that are at play. The incentive to do a good job, to be an honest actor, to innovate, to have positive feedback loops. All the things we were told only capitalists and authoritarian systems allow. But we know through personal experience that that is not the case. (laughs) We are in fact surrounded by negative feedback loops. Another reason to explore incentives is the question of having a society that values and protects both goods and community self-interest. Or community and individual self-interest. Capitalism usually puts them in conflict when that is not the way it must be. So first is the motivational incentive. How are we motivated at work to do a good job, to work at all? Meeting our basic needs is a first, but to do a good job, we need to feel valued. We need to be empowered to have an amount of responsibility, a sense of mastery. If people take part in making the decisions of the workplace, own a share of it, have their work compensated fairly, there is controlled self-worth. If one work is judged by workmates as the work, it is your workmate's for judging your work through effort ratings. And this is decided by consensus. People's interests should align to their workplace and the neighborhood. They don't, then there's real choice to find one and mm-hmm. none at all. Because you can also have a worker council of one. Yes. Yeah, sure. So there's an incentive of allocation. What is the incentive to participate in the planning process? Rational self-interest, something that is not immoral by itself it would be that we want more input for ourselves. In Paracom, this could be fulfilled because council plans are also social interactions where everyone gets the most possible. So any worker would vote for the plan that grants them a good outcome. By spreading the work out the way full employment of Paracom does, we all work less and can get more. Whether a workplace proposal is to have more leisure time or more flexible hours or anything else, you make sure you get it by participating. Showing up is most of the battle, when resources are being distributed. That way we don't have to fight over redistribution of created wealth that's already been made. That's my uh, jab at taxation. Right. Then there's dynamic efficiency, which is just another name for innovation. I think uh, I don't need to explain that necessity is the mother of inven- invention. And then, uh, and then I have some texts about the life of an enterprise, like when you start a council and how a council could end – like going go what would going out of business entail yeah. and but before like if if you if you can't make your plan work right there would be like your industry council that would kind of give you advice that they would send a, a fixer to help you out right but if a, if you, if your workplace does end let's say you have a partners who don't want to work you know have a falling out uh, or their approved plan um Let's see, if they don't have an approved plan by the last round and they've exhausted their appeals and social goods costs still outweigh their benefits, to prevent this, industry federations would provide help for those struggling. Doing the work professional organizations and unions do only without the zero-sum game of the current marketplace. In an economy where competition is unnecessary, enterprises can actually help each other to survive. Mutual aid replaces doggy dog and so on, and so on, and then and then the word on demo, uh, like long term planning, which then actually becomes <coughs> what the political process is. Right. Uh, what to invest in? What to develop? Or where? Things about protecting the environment, and then international trade would also be like trade balances would occur. Where? Let's see. What was how was it described? Let's see. Trade between different regions in a world economy trade begets certain efficiency gains for each party between equal nations. The efficiency gain for trade should be shared as equally as possible. If one is trading with a wealthier economy, the poorer one would not be prevented from aiming to attain the best bargain it can get. More problem appears, though, when trading with a poor economy. In these cases, a paracom would agree to terms that give the poor trading partner more than half of the efficiency gain, because citizens of poorer countries receive less economic reward for their effort, on average. As things improve, the ratio equalizes. And a word on second-hand goods. Second-hand goods can be defined as goods that already have been asked for, produced, and delivered. Durable goods like cars, machines, cameras. Right. It's important to recognize the risk of markets, black or otherwise, emerging, which would have a detrimental consequence. Something that absolutely, and this is something that exists with like secondhand, uh, like uh, game <laughs> by, uh, was it uh, how uh, GameStop hates uh, secondhand game markets? Yeah, buying you buying used games. So let's see. So this is something that absolutely should and will happen. It's like a barter, bartering, or or it's saying that if you're going to like trade secondhand goods, you are actually bartering them. Right. or or it's like a gift economy you just like oh i don't need this anymore it's like it's like the free store or the free market right I mean, it would be, it would be like that so if anything we actually already have that at least when it's radicals or social you know social people doing it so federations and councils could organize the trades without the need of a market uh one way is people that way like, you're not paying credits for a second-hand good you just shouldn't do that you wouldn't do it Right. No, uh, exactly. One way is people turn in used goods and receive consumption rights in return. Right? So, but this would be the consumer right. council doing that, while others get said goods using their credits. Reprising, reprising schedules can be adjusted before the start of any planning year, uh, in light of access demand and supply. Changing as needed to help or held steady. Private exchanges can still happen with an alternative currency or barter. But are less likely to get out of hand, and they don't need to be treated as illicit, hmm. like uh, you know, like the Soviets may have done. Yeah, and then and then the thing about transition, um, I basically list all the different kinds of the tools in our toolbox. Yeah, um, building eco- economic reform movements, building co ops, building the margins with mutual aid, right. See, after yeah, so on, so on. And then a conclusion. So, yeah, this was just a talking. You know. Yeah. It's kind of long. But I think I time myself. I think it takes me half an hour.
1: Yeah, no worries. I, You know, I was just thinking, like, so far, I don't know. Like, I'm not trying to, like, be a nitpicker here. But it just feels like this is all just a market. It's just all the market we have now. But we're just... Adding in strong welfare programs, it's basically like democratic socialism. That kind of like puts me in a that kind of puts me at unease with the way that the paracom model works,
2: because that's that it's it, it's odd because that's the usual response that I get after laying the, all this out, I, and I, that strikes me as very odd because I go I put in a lot of, I put in a for, for a fair amount of effort to explain how it's not like just welfare. In capitalism.
1: No, and you do you do put a lot of it, and it's not necessarily you and your messaging that's wrong. It's mm-hmm. the model itself, really. So the model itself has, like you said, like there's the effort credit, but there's a cap, there's a wage limit, like how much you can actually make. There's you know if someone's struggling, it's mutual aid. At the end of the day, that's all just stuff we already have. It's just making it more
2: fair. That's- oh, no, no, no. The mutual aid part is like just part of the transition. It's not the, it's not something that would. Oh, gotcha. Well, I guess, no, I guess, gotcha. I guess you have a point, but it's maybe just a matter of mixing. Just I've, I've been saying a lot of different things at the same time. No, okay. The assumption is that the Paracom system is operating like completely. It's the top level of the economy. I think that's what's maybe the confusion in talking about councils as co-ops or unions. I think we're, we're, we're still thinking in terms of an enterprise by an enterprise or, or, or lo- the local barter economy. Paracom is like, this is like the whole country is like all the natural resources are in a commons and that's being allocated based on all the unions negotiating through the round system. That is something that has never been done before, not even in socialist state commies, because they collected information and made prices, but then they didn't let factories self-manage about what they would make. They would give orders. They would coordinate. Yeah. So And the difference is that maybe it could still be described as like market just because there's credits, but I mean... This is something that all socialists talk about, like how to enumerate labor. But I think maybe maybe that section could be taken out that through your that with the plan being what it is. Yeah. That if demand is met with the supply, that it's expected that you'll go into a store X amount of times and you'll get X amount of stuff. Yeah. And you don't need the credits to do. I don't know. It, so and like, I think it's just saying like you worked at this part I think it's all just so that people have the quote unquote well the freedom to like oh I want an extra candy bar you know more than the average you know it's just so that everyone isn't getting the absolute equal amount of stuff because otherwise I think that's how it would come out
1: no and you know like I totally understand that and my so, like, here's where I come in with my anti-work movement. As I said before, I'm not, like, my whole thing is in a post-capitalist society, pretty much every job minus, like, a couple, and if you want to elaborate on that, we can, would be able to be automated. We wouldn't have to have, I'm, I'm actually writing an essay slash paper slash book. I don't know how big it's going to yeah. be. Right now, I just... Well,
2: the thing about the thing about this model is that like it's not really assuming the amount of work being done in the first place, or how much is automated. Like, it's definitely adaptable to any other kind of like, if if you're a um, uh, as a posthumanist, yeah. If you're a um, <laughs> if you're anti-work, I think I think this could this could adapt to that. I mean, I think it's
1: it's basically just
2: like I the, think I think a critique is that it's not flexible, but I. I think it's only inflexible because, or it seems inflexible, just compared to all the other levels of democratic socialism that people have on their minds. That it's just—it's beyond; it. it's so far beyond it. Right. Like the fact that it assumes that the, like all industry and and such, has been—if not nationalized—but it's it's common owned. It's commonly owned.
1: Right. And
2: I mean, I mean, the workplaces aren't commonly owned. That the point is that the they're. they're
1: yeah, the the councils. resources, the actual resources. They're the councils. It's
2: the resources that. Yeah, it's the base. The base is what matters, and the fact that the base is owned by five companies is kind of the problem. But just because if it was owned by five hundred companies doesn't change the hierarchy. Right. You know, breaking up the monopolies doesn't doesn't fix change the problem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that I think that's kind of where like it can be flexible, and with you know the with the reconfiguring based on how you know anti-work happens how automation happens etc etc that might that this can be like a whole workable model but like i just see a lot of issues with the idea of credits basically i look at it as this
2: that's what that is what people point out to as like their issue it's just the credit system it seems like that's the thing that needs to either be completely rethought or or something i yeah i think
1: i think honestly because like as marx put it you know like for about, I think it was Marx. It was either Marx or Kapakin that said that. Like labor
2: he, vouchers or whatever. I don't know.
1: It wasn't even that. Like what said yeah, an like, Ancom
2: an vision of society is just take and give. You know. Yeah. Um. The 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 like there's there this be... uh, utopian novel, News from Nowhere. Yeah. Where I love this little bit. It's a v. Vin- I'm just describing a vignette. But he walks into a tobacco shop. Of course, it's still a tobacco shop. Right. But he walks into tobacco shop. It's being manned by two kids. Because they're basically just like hanging out, yeah. Exactly. And and the and the girl who's like the older one, the other kid is like just kind of messing around, right? And she goes like, "Oh, hi, sir. You know, it's we've we've got a number of, like you know, uh, nice tobaccos for on offer. You know, uh, I'll fill your bag. You know, because everyone has like a tobacco pouch, I guess. But he yeah. pulls his out, and it's like, "Oh, that's that looks horrible. You need a new one." And it's like, "Oh, we got these nice ones in right here. Like, here's here's one. I can set you up with it." And then I'll fill it up to the brim, and then he just gives it to him. And it's like, there you go. And he, and he says, like, um, how do I pay for this? And the girl's like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, the premise is a guy wakes up in the future. Gotcha. The great gotcha. the great long-awaited future of 2005. Oh, my gosh.
1: <laughs> I can't wait for that.
2: It was written in uh, 1890-something. Right. No, but um,
1: – so. So, so, like – I guess like a big thing too is that with the, with that with that reconfiguring the mark the model is great except for the loan part, but that would be you know taken out with the reconfiguring and without. Yeah, that's
2: an extra bit that was almost like added post hoc in the book. Yeah, so like because basically, well, the writers like they've they've like I said they've updated their like scheme or the they, in, when they write their books, they write it every ten years, and what they add in what I took out from like their last edition back in twenty twelve was like stuff they've been (laughs) responding to. Like people bring up their concerns, like someone must've brought up how you take a loan out. Like what if you need an emergency amount of consumption credit, like a disaster befalls you. And he basically says, well, there's a type of mutual aid, like the consumer council has like an emergency fund. So if a tree falls on your house, then the value in the economy is there to get it fixed labor and all.
1: Yeah. Okay. Like that, that part makes sense. Like, of course, in that kind of society, you would need something like that. I, so like my suggestion, honestly, and like, obviously you're not, you're not the writer of this, of this book. So sure. But I'm,
2: I want to, I'm, you know, I've a propagator hat on. So yeah. Yeah. So like
1: one thing I would suggest is first needing to just refigure it out because like, obviously the whole goal of the ANCOM movement is to work as little as possible but still be, you know, still have yeah. a place in society, still be able to get resources and to be yeah, environmentally
2: I think that, sustainable. I think that's maybe they just need to just put in a line or two, kind of where we're saying like well I think I did. Like it through the planning process, everyone can basically put in that they want to work as little as possible. Or like and but that's how like that's how the planning that's how the the, the round process works. Everyone puts in an amount they want to work, which could be two hours a week. And and everyone puts in what they kind of need or what they like, uh, plus what they like. But then it's like, okay, if if we're going to work this much with this much automation, we can make that much supply. And that has to balance with the demand side. So I, I think it would it would result in an economy where everyone's working as little as possible when it's necessary. And everything else, this is voluntary labor.
1: Yeah. So the volunteerist should love it. And like that, that part is like, so like my biggest issue with that is, you know, we all put in how much we want to work, et cetera, et cetera. We get that much resources based on sometimes like people like me, for example, I fluctuate. I'll be like some weeks I'll be like, yeah, I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. But some weeks I'm like, I can't do it. I just need like a break. But I still yeah. need money, regardless. Like I can't just say like I would still need those consumption credits, regardless. So, I mean, that's my mental. That's my mental health issues. I have really sure. bad ADHD, anxiety, depression. You name it, I got it. Probably not. Skif- you know what I mean? But um. Yeah. <laughs> like, but how many
2: of these were a result of living in capitalism? I
1: mean, probably most of them. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know. Yeah. That's how I look at it. Is you know sometimes people aren't going. I to did want put to in a your...
2: word about changing the plan based on like month to month desires. Um,
1: but yeah. then, like that's that, still... that is
2: something they address. They address in like a in a long form way. Then that but... still just
1: puts you like okay, so this yeah. month you're not going to get as many resources, but sometimes you still need the same amount of resources. So that's why. No, I think,
2: I think the point is you do, and you just either make it up later or. That's what the surplus is for
1: yeah I I guess I kind of see that I just I feel like so I, I don't want to hammer too much on
2: this right? yeah. I feel like I feel like at the we... same time you don't you don't want you don't want your utopian vision to have too many like circles and circles like a Aristotelian solar system
1: right like you know um... people who like communism and anarchism generally don't like to go to you know like election meetings every day in school you know what I mean. <laughs>
2: Right. Well, the idea is that it's not like you do the, the rounds once a quarter a year, and, and that's it. And they're not even meetings. They're more like, um, yeah, you know, Zoom call sessions or something. Like
1: no, and that makes sense. But it's like you still, it's still going to require, like, at the end of the day, it's still going to require a lot more bureaucracy than you really need. I feel like getting rid of the whole idea of credits and just distributing, I feel like. Okay, so this yeah. is gonna, this is where I'm controversial as far as anarchists go. I feel yeah, like okay. we need a ration system. Obviously, based on the amount a person needs. Like, if a person has six kids, they're going to need a little more than the person with no kids. But I
2: feel well, like... Well, it's based on a head, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I feel like we... I feel like a ration system is a lot better. Because, like, if someone can't go out and work for... So, yeah, yeah, kids, it's
2: just a straight UBI... Yeah, and it's not really—we're not rewarding effort and sacrifice then.
1: Yeah, well, because the whole point is that we automate as much as possible, and like people who do have to do like necessary. We're
2: throwing jobs, out, but well, you're kind of throwing out economic justice then. If you're doing a harder job or, but it's socially necessary, um, not
1: necessarily. Like, so people you know, who are doing the harder job, people who are actually doing work, which you know, like yeah. there will be like doctors. We will never be able to just completely automate medicine as yeah. much as we try
2: well i i believe that there's really little we should uh, automate i mean there's there's obviously repetitive onerous work that's to be automated but we've already done that or we're about to but it seems like well it's what's left to be automated are things that um
1: like we can really automate pretty much everything we can well I, I think about
2: how everything. like you know we a lot of work we have now is created by having computers yeah you know, by by the complexity of computers, we create more complexity that then requires more man hours we, and duct tape and tech tape duct tapered jobs and bullshit.
1: Like I see that, and like, but that makes sense. But one of the big things too is that you have to take into account what we haven't even tried to automate yet. So we haven't tried to automate farming, and you can easily automate like most of the farming process. You get a person in a tractor, let's say or a harvester, or the harvest wheat.
2: Well, we've already well, I mean as far as industrial farming we have. I don't know what you mean by that. Like, I think you're referring to the crops that still need yeah, to be Yeah, the crops care,
1: like but, that kind of stuff. You can easily have like
2: If you want to if you want to try automating that. strawberry harvesting, oh be, be my guest, I guess. And and then your your reaction is actually pretty common that the that's like the place where they get where people get caught like um caught on or is like I don't like this part because it's just not radical enough is the is the credits or the completely changing up i mean it's you'd think it'd be it's radical enough saying we're not going to compensate anyone based on what they own but only on the effort they put in yeah but but But, i need to cut you off i need we need to wrap up oh wait i'm sorry so i just want to end the show thank you to my guest my profound thanks for listening actually so i'll just i'll close out the show so thank you for listening. Uh, it's been a wonderful time, wonderful conversation. Thank you again to Mayhem Calling. It is his monthly podcast. Check out his YouTube channel, The Mayhem Calling. Uh, that is where you can find most, if all. Do you uh, have any other places you are at?
1: Yeah, uh, it's all there. Uh, I also, I'm, I'm also on Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio, Podbean, Audible. I think that's it.
2: Yeah. I good. gotta see about getting on Audible. I, I don't think I'm on Audible.
1: If you have um, if you have Podbean, you can go through and you can do all those. All you have to do is just like
2: register. It's like
1: seven bucks a month.
2: Oh god, I have to pay. That's probably why I haven't done it. Yeah. But they, Yeah, same thing with well, I'm on Spotify. But anyway. Yeah. Um you don't have to pay for that. Anyway, so okay, thank you very much. Uh this has been anyway. Have a good one, be rad, and keep it chill.